0: If ads give you a pain in the nads, or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad-free.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together.
2: To
0: understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you? It is podcast time. It's the podcast that makes economics comprehensible. So I believe. Logical, <laughs> easy to understand, <laughs> applicable to all things.
2: How are you, my man? I'm great. I'm, I'm brilliant. Well, you, you, uh, Davos man and all the oh, rest. Oh,
3: yeah. Tell us,
2: because I I wanted to ask you this. I mean, we mean to ask you this. Like Davos is on last week. Yeah. What's it really like? It's just. It looks like everything you see on TV and all that kind of stuff. It's all the big knobs, just knobbing, just knobbing around the place. Yeah. He
0: knobs, she knobs, <laughs> they knob the whole thing. Nommé-vous. Uh No. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, okay, so. My relationship, and how
2: come? By the way, I, and how come you missed it? this I missed year? It. You should have, I, I should have been there. I should have been
0: there. So about, about fifteen years ago, a letter came through our door, kind of with a big Swiss stamp on it, and I thought, oh, this is unusual. Don't know how many people in Switzerland. <laughs> and I opened it up, and it said, you know, Dave McWilliams, we would like to nominate you. This is the World Economic Forum. I'd never mm. been to Davos, right? Because it yeah. costs twenty five grand to go. Really? Right. So that's why. What do you get for your money? I don't, I don't you, uh, you better believe it. <laughs> okay. okay, move on quickly. <laughs> no, I'm going to. So, sorry, nobody's going. No, no normal person's going to that sort of shit, yeah. Dick, right? Yeah, yeah, But they said every year they, they give out this award. And I don't know where it comes from. I had no idea where it came from, who nominated me. It's called the Young Global Leader, right? Mm. And it caused great laugh in the house. Leader. The kids were saying, Dad, not only are you not young, <laughs> yeah. You are not global. You're local. Right? You just hang around here. Yeah. And a leader, certain, you are not. You so. are a follower. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I so sorry. I emailed them and said, well, thank you very much. Like, you know, you get an award from someone international award. That's great." And it was to do with, well anything for like freebies are great. Freebies so are Oh, <laughs> it's a jolly, right? Okay. And in fact, you can make an economist. You know, all this stuff that I do in economics. That's a, that. That was a fork. that. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. And that was great. In fact, I met my mate Martin Lustow there.
2: Oh, okay, from to Argentina. From
0: Argentina, who's a great skin,
2: right? Yeah.
0: But, so I fly to Zurich, get a train to Davos. But the thing is, they they said, you'll we'll come, we'll pay all your expenses, la la la. You can go to whatever you want, but you have to book your own hotel. Mm. I thought that's grand. I'd forgotten that this was a big shindig. And of course, every hotel is booked up for about a year for that weekend. Yeah, right? yeah. So I ended up in a place called Wiesen, which is a tiny village about Fifteen miles away oh, okay. from Davos, yeah. and I was in, in the poorhouse. It was definitely. It was almost like it was a combination of a hotel and an army camp, and the Swiss Army were in it. So that's what they put right. the soldiers who were patrolling, who were policing, and me. Right. Right. But a lovely little place, a gorgeous little <laughs> Alpine village. Right. Anyway, Davos itself is an unusual town. It's not that pretty Swiss town that you imagine. It's quite an industrial town. It's quite a modern town that it has had this kind of Swiss health tourism for years and years mm. and years. The Davos thing itself is mad. It's huge, right? And what you get, and I actually ended up going to, you can go to these dinners. Now you can go to these dinners with like Bill Gates or, or you can put your name down or you can do any really mad things. So I actually went with an Indian guru to a slow food dinner that went on for about five hours. Oh and there was God. a big freaking bagwan geezer giving yeah. it loads. So that was, because I'd never met that sort of people before. But... It is interesting. I mean, you definitely see all these great and good. There's no doubt of it. And I, at one stage, I went to a hotel for a drink in the afternoon, just for a beer, because I, I didn't know anyone. So it's kind of hard to get a sense of what's happening. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm having a beer and I'm kind of noticing a lot of sort of bulky looking geezers talking into their cufflinks. Around me, <laughs> increasingly talking into their cufflinks <laughs> around me, and I'm like, oh, "This is a bit weird." They're certainly not coming here for me. Yeah, and a and like, little thing in their ears, little thing in their ears, yeah, yeah, thing that they're remaining in there. And they're huge guys, and I'm thinking, mm, I "Don't really like this. this." Is making me a bit uncomfortable. And I turn around, and beside me is Ehud Barak, who was the prime minister of Israel.
2: Yes, so it was the entire
0: yeah. Mossad were around me, and do you know what he was drinking. Huh. tequila sunrise what's wrong with that I just think it's pretty in the middle of the day <laughs> I just thought it was great <laughs>
2: that's the prime why not the I mean, prime minister
0: of Israel neck in his tequila sunrise I think that's
2: a, that's well, a, that's if a he, look if he was doing slammers now there will be a different <laughs> ball game altogether <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> but anyway so what Davos is like so that was the only time I've been at the big shindig yeah and then they invited me to speak at another shindig in a place called Tianyin, Tianyan which is a city in China and I'd never heard of it. And there's 11 million people living <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of out of the middle of nowhere. Do an outback million. place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Small little place. You know, you're getting up and talking to, it's like talking to the Politbuers. Like, But I mean, there is a feeling of being at this sort of, almost like this sort of corporate political nexus. And what people hate about Davos is that it's clear that that level of money can buy you access to any politician. And yeah. that's what really people you take something like, for example, the Red Campaign, no, the Bonos campaign,
2: right? Yes. At yeah.
0: Davos, they've raised over o- almost half a trillion dollars. Get out of here, really? For charity. Wow. You forget that Nelson Mandela and De Klerk first met at Davos. So it used to be something quite interesting. Wow. You, you forget that, for example, it was a place where the Russians and the Americans used to talk in the 70s. So it was something that Kind of unofficially.
2: Kind of unofficially. Yeah, so yeah. it's
0: morphed into something that I think people rightly think, hold on a second, who can afford 25 grand? Nobody, mm-hmm. right? Unless you're unbelievably wealthy. Yeah. And then does 25 grand and the rest buy you access to politicians? Yeah. And then if it buys you access, it buys you influence. And if it buys you influence, it feeds into this idea of the, the global lizard elite yeah. <laughs> and all that sort yeah, of stuff, yeah, yeah. which is kind of... I think it's fair enough, but I'm not too sure it actually is the complete picture, right? And I think the complete picture is more to do with the fact that obviously a huge amount of business deals are done there. So it is for that. Yeah. But I think it's past sell-by date.
2: Well, it's interesting because I I was watching something on Davos during the week, a kind of a review of it. And there was two big things they were talking about. The first was, do you prefer Davos in the winter? Or in the spring?
0: Well, that's, these are first world problems, aren't they? This is the first. This was a, big, this well, was a big question. I can tell you what Davos is like in the winter, because I went in the winter. Yeah. Right? Freezing cold, yeah. right? And of course, you know, the cold is all about footwear. And I was quite chuffed to get my little award. And I forgot you that I was going to be runners. I forgot I was going to the <laughs> bloody house. So I was freezing all the time. So do you prefer Davos in the spring and yeah. the summertime? Yeah.
2: But the other thing they were talking about, and this is probably what we should get on to, is they were talking about Ukraine. And Zelensky addressed them. Yes.
0: And this is the, so this is the interesting thing, right? So Zelensky, and let's talk about Ukraine, let's talk about Russia. And we're yeah. going to talk to Bill Browder, who's written a really fantastic book that I've just read called Red Notice. We'll talk about that in a second. We're going to talk to Bill. He's in London. We're going to talk to him in a couple of minutes interestingly, at Davos, right? Zelensky talks to them. Yeah, And Zelensky is on a campaign. He's talking to everybody. And what he was saying at Davos is, look, you're the richest people in the world, right? You control all the banks. You control all the big corporations. It's all the big politicians. I'd love to be there, but frankly, I can't, right? Yeah. What I want you to do is I want you to ensure Ukraine that some of the assets of the Russian oligarchs that you have frozen are going to be used for a Marshall Plan to rebuild Ukraine. And in so doing, he's throwing the cat amongst the pigeons, right? Because morally, that's the right thing to do. Sure, But you can see that all these very rich people are recoiling. Well, this is the interesting thing. And I kind of yeah. noticed that when I was there. I'll tell you a story about uh, Rupert Murdoch when I was there, right? Right. So this is, this, is, this is what I saw at Davos, right? I was going to the Google Party. Right, and at the Google party, right, which was really bizarre, and this was two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Yeah. So Google wasn't a huge thing it was now. Yeah, right. And the two guys who set up Google are a guy called Sergey Brin and a guy called Larry Page. Yeah. And at their party, that I eventually got into, what was really weird was Sergey Brin, who's the you know the founder of Google. Yeah. Was actually serving drinks to everyone. He was the guy with that. He was like a lounge boy. Oh, right. He was kind of a nerdy American guy who was actually a Russian guy. Sir guy brings Russian to bring us back to the. But getting into that party, right? Everything is the security, everyone. The Swiss are really good at security and the cops, everyone, soldiers. And the soldiers are all conscripts, right? And if you've ever worked for the Swiss, and I have worked with the Swiss, they love an order. They love taking orders. They're very, 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 very order specific people, right? Mm -hmm. And. I'm at this queue in the cold in my runners freezing. It's about minus 40 outside and I'm saying, "Jesus, get me in for a drink for shit." What a twat. Thank you for that vote of confidence, John. <laughs> and I look, I clock this elderly man shuffles up, yeah, and barges into the front of the queue. So I was thinking, who's your man? It's yeah. Rupert Murdoch, right?
2: Right. Right. And he
0: doesn't have a badge. And the Swiss soldier yeah, yeah. was about
2: 19. Your name's not down, you're not says, getting in. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, sorry, son, I don't know you. <laughs> right. It's like, ladies, come on in. It was like a bouncer
2: <laughs> yeah. at midnight at the Olympia, right? Yeah, okay. with the red velvet robe. The red velvet
0: rope. <laughs> what was lovely about it was that Murdoch had never been said no to. Like, he Murdoch had never been denied access anywhere. Yeah. And the Swiss guy had never broken the rules. Right. So it was like a dialogue of the deaf, right? Murder's like, do you know who I am? The Swiss guy says, no, I don't know who you are. You're not in the list. So we all slipped past him. <laughs> it was great. See you later, Ruby. I'm sure he got in eventually. It was my one moment of na 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 Runners and all. You might have your little furry boots, but you have no name tag. So you're not getting... But, so that's the whole Davos thing. It's It's... It's weird. But to come back to Zelensky, Zelensky says we would like a martial aid plan. But it's very, very clear that very rich people don't like this notion of somebody appropriating assets without any structures behind it. Okay? So what they're trying to do, and this is where I think people would say at Davos, hold on a second, how come you, the 1% of the 1%, get to set the agenda? Whereas we, the democratic people of the world, have no access like Rupert Murdoch, to the Mm. top table, right? Even though Rupert has all the access, And what needs to happen or what will have to happen for this martial aid plan is that the United Nations, some organisation, is going to have to come up with a new treaty which says aggressors in future, explicit aggressors, will pay reparations to the people that you have bullied and attacked and that will be orchestrated through a fund or some UN. Only if they lose. Only if they lose, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then the question is how do you get money from the Russians? Now, a lot of it's been frozen outside. Mm. But what is interesting is Zelensky's trying to set the pace, and rightly so. But you can see all this, well, I don't know about this, yeah, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah. And obviously, the thing is, Russia's on the Security Council of the UN, so it's not going to vote against itself. Yes. So it is interesting, but to focus on Ukraine, it's the fact that Zelensky's saying, look, you are the rich people in the world. You have got to take a stand. And I think when somebody says at Davos, act, stop talking, yeah. act. Then what you see is the frictions between all the various interests. Because ultimately, it's hard to force reparations in a country that you said that hasn't lost anything yet. Yeah. And it looks like now that Russia won't lose.
2: Well, it seems to be getting to a stalemate, doesn't it? Exactly. Getting to a complete. And that's what kind of Putin is banking on. That's exactly what he's banking on. Well, he was banking, I think, on a quick victory. Well, yeah. But if not a quick
0: victory. So, you know, what what Zelensky has exposed there at Davos is all the internal. The talk is great and we love Ukraine and yada, 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 right? But when he's saying, okay, I want money and I want you to come after money and I want you guys to take the lead on this, Mm. what you see is the very, very, very wealthy. Kind of think, ooh, someone's coming after money. Yeah. It could be me next. Yeah. So there is an element of that. And look, don't forget all the Russian oligarchs. When I went to Davos, right? That last, that first and last time. Okay. Yeah. When I went there, there was a huge Russian oligarch presence. These guys are deep in the firm. Where's all the Russian money? It's in bloody Switzerland. Yeah. It's in Davos, right?
2: Yeah. So Putin's daughter lives in Switzerland. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. they're
0: all complicit. It's this idea that we're different, you know. And even when I went there, like the Russian party at Davos in 2000 I think it was six or seven
2: did you get into that one
0: no but you know do you know what one of them brought a stockbroker, a big stockbroker in Russia they brought a bear what a Russian bear to the party on a leash on a leash <laughs> I swear to Jesus <laughs> really yeah yes Jesus so it was kind of mad mad oligarch stuff yeah when Zelensky says let's go against the Russian oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs have been aided, abetted, facilitated, encouraged, whined and dined by Davos. Right, yeah. So they're going against their own mates. And interesting, we're going to talk to Bill Browder now. And we're yep. going to talk about the nexus of power in Russia, between the oligarchs, between Putin, between Western investors, and what actually makes the thing tick. Because ultimately, wars are not only, and not exclusively, but they're always about money. Who has it? Who has enough of it? Where does it come from? And do you have enough money to actually prosecute the war indefinitely? So let's go talk to Bill Browder in London about Putin, his allies, and let's follow the money. Years ago when I was in Russia, a name that was always on the lips of all financiers was Bill Browder. He set up the Hermitage Fund, one of the biggest investment funds in Russia during the Wild West years between 1995 and 1998. What we're going to do, we're going to talk to Bill now, we're going to come back to those Wild West years, but we're going to start a discussion at the moment when the Russians defaulted and devalued in August of 1998, because that was the moment when an unknown bureaucrat, really a technocrat, from Leningrad, St. Petersburg, started to emerge from the shadows. Vladimir Putin. Nobody'd ever heard of him before. And then by 1999, he was prime minister. And then very quickly after that, he was president. So let's start the conversation with Bill at that pivotal moment in 1998.
3: Well, so when Vladimir Putin first arrived, as you mentioned, so y- Yeltsin was on his last legs. He was drunk. He had heart disease. He, um, I, I think he was getting dementia he was totally unpredictable. He was corrupt. And he was really worried that um, he couldn't carry on and everyone else was worried he couldn't carry on. And, they, they, and, and so the objective of these oligarchs was to find a replacement that could like keep the status quo so that they could keep their money. So the, the, the 20 guys really? 20, the 22 guys. And then this, the, the objective of Yeltsin was to find somebody who could stay in place for, um, and get, well, first of all, give him a pardon on day one so that whatever crimes he committed, which were many, would be no longer crimes because they were pardoned and to be then have enough longevity so that Yeltsin could live out his old age without then having a new guy come in and, and, and reverse the pardon. So that was the major objective of the transition in power.
0: And by the way, just Irish listeners with long memories might remember one of our leaders, I think it was Albert Reynolds, remaining on the tarmac in Shannon Airport, waiting for Yeltsin to get off the plane on his way back from a trip in the States. And he never turned up because at that stage, was Yeltsin drunk. was just, he was boozing all the time. He was,
3: he was boozing drunk. all the time. He was too drunk to get out. He, he, he would have fallen down the steps of the airplane.
0: So, so, there, so Putin gets in and he's, it's a deal between Putin, the oligarchs and Yeltsin.
3: So, well, there was no deal. Just back up for one second. As you mentioned, they picked one guy to be prime minister who was supposed to be then the president. That didn't work out. They picked another guy. That didn't work out. Third guy didn't work out. And so they were like kind of grasping at straws. And they and they picked this guy, Putin. Nobody really knew him. Um, he, he was a total unknown character. They, they picked Putin. And they pick him because he's this quiet guy he always got stuff done for all of his bosses before. seemed reliable, seemed loyal. You know, it wasn't charismatic at all. He was like really kind of plain. But you know, I mean, they, they were they were kind of scratching the bottom of the barrel, and they picked him. And then he did something really outrageous, which tells you a lot about him. He was totally a nobody, and 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 he had to be elected, so they could appoint him president. You know, sure. Yeltsin could resign; he would become as prime minister. He could become president, but he had three months later, he'd have to be elected. And it was a real democracy back then. So they, they, he was kind of worried, how was he going to be elected? And he did the most outrageous thing. And this is like the sort of original sin of his presidency, which I think goes on to define everything that's happened since then. But nobody really understood it at the time, but we do now. This was 1999. So all of a sudden, I'm living in Moscow. I guess you're there. And a bunch of apartments start blowing up in Moscow. So terrorist incident. They, they yes, blow up these apartments.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So the apartments blow up, like, you know, 50 people would die in one explosion. And, and, and so everybody then the next night, you know, nobody could sleep because they you didn't know if your apartment building was going to blow up. And they did about eight of these things. And then Putin, or I should say the FSB gets caught trying to do the ninth one. So, the, so Putin was blowing up his own apartment buildings and then blamed it on the Chechens. Yeah, Blamed it on the Chechens. Then he launched a, a full-scale war on the Chechnya. And the war is not too dissimilar to what we've just seen in Moriopol or Kharkiv or, or, I mean, just total obliteration. They must've killed 50,000 civilians in Chechnya. It's the most dramatic, horrible thing. And on the back of that, the Russians after, and, and everybody was so traumatized by the explosions that they were just wanting blood and vengeance. And he gave them blood and vengeance, except they didn't actually do anything. And that got him elected. And so Putin comes in, as a sort of wartime president, you know, riding high, and um, he becomes president, and and again, the guy's not charismatic, and then he kind of still needs to keep everybody on side because because the oligarchs still had all the power, and I would argue that in the first two years or so, he behaved like a technocrat, not not like some kind of awful nationalistic dictator. He was reforming things and doing, all, and I, I actually thought, you know, this is good. He's not drunk. He's you know, kind of. Lean speaks English. Sure,
0: yeah, he's yeah. he's 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 in the model of somebody who's taking the job seriously, as opposed to Yeltsin, who wasn't. Yeah,
3: sort sort of boring guy, but but like you know, the, the, every couple of weeks there'd be an announcement of this reform or that reform. It all seemed like it was normalizing that Russia would just become sort of a normal.
0: a normal place, if yeah. if that's possible. And when did you change your mind? When did you realize, hold on a second, there's something else going on here?
3: Well, so so the, the next thing that happens, which which actually confirmed that that in, in my mind it was becoming a normal place, is the arrests the richest oligarch in the country, a guy named. Mikhail Hordakovsky, who is the owner of an oil company called Yukos.
0: Who's actually been on this show last year.
3: Yeah. Well, he arrests him, puts him on trial, and um, sentences him to 10 years in prison. And so I, I'm cheering. Great. One down. 21 to go. And then the next biggest oligarch, Roman Abramovich, who probably hasn't been on your show, no, we don't have any Chelsea
0: fans on this show. That's his only, that's his, that's his major crime. The other stuff we can look over. Go on, yeah. anyway, tell me more about Abramovich.
3: So, okay, I'm waiting. Okay, so now he going to be arrested and have his oil company expropriated and so on? No, he, he's, he's appointed governor of the Chukotka region and his he, um, Gazprom buys his oil company for $13 billion of cash. So I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, what's going on here? This is not the getting rid of the oligarchs, bringing normalcy back to Russia. This is something, this looks pretty crooked to me. Why one... It's treated one way and one being treated a different way and then of course i was expelled from the country in in uh, 2005 declared a threat to national security uh, and after that my offices were raided by the police they seized all of our corporate documents and then they used the corporate documents to um orchestrate a complex fraud in which 230 million dollars of taxes that i paid to the russian government gets refunded overnight on christmas eve 2007 uh, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovers the crime, exposes it, and he's subsequently arrested, tortured for 358 days, and murdered in Russian police custody on November 16th, 2009. And that pretty much changed my life forever. I became a full-time justice activist. I gave up my life, like you, I'm no longer a fund manager. I, I gave up my life and I became a full-time, basically taking all of my energies and going after the people who killed Sergei. And, and that's what I've been doing for 12 years. And and i've gotten some people pretty pretty good we we created something called the magnitsky act named after sergei no absolutely yep and the magnitsky act freezes assets and bans visas of human rights violators in russia and, and kleptocrats and that's been applied to sergei's killers and it's also applied to all sorts of other people in russia and is the template for what's being used today by all governments around the world to uh, sanction all these oligarchs and so it's kind of a remarkable you know one crime against one person that ends up in one my lawyer Sergei Magnitsky's death has led to the policy that's now being used around the world to punish Putin and his oligarchs.
0: Well, just before we talk about Putin, the, the account of Sergei's arrest, his constant torture, uh, and appalling degradation—I mean, it's it's in the book. It's I'm not I'm not going to go into it so much in the in, in the podcast, but it's 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 chilling the extraordinary lengths to which they went to silence this amazingly brave person. I'm not too sure anybody I know, or my, certainly myself would have held out under that sort of torture. But what it gives you a sense is what happens to people in Russia who go against the regime.
3: Yeah, basically, there is no way in Russia that you can expose this type of corruption and not pay a very dear price. That's the bottom line.
0: So the the Putin oligarchs, okay, so you have people like Khodorkovsky are arrested and they are put in prison. But you also have people like Abramovich who toe the line, play the game with Putin. Has it been the sense that in the book, you talk about a deal that Putin did with the oligarchs, which basically said, I want cash. If you give me some of your business, I'll let you do what you want.
3: Yeah. So basically what happened was when everybody saw Hordakovsky sitting in the cage in the courtroom, and he's far smarter, better than them, and they see him get convicted, they all rushed to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And he said, it's simple. And not to the Russian government or anything like that. He wanted the cash himself and the ownership. This was like the biggest extortion that's ever happened in the history of the world. And from from this moment on, Putin became the richest man in Russia, the richest man in the world, and it's completely changed everything.
0: So why would the richest man in the world, with everything going according to plan, up until the 24th of February, 2022. Why would he risk, why do you think? Because you've, I mean, you've you've met this guy. You've been, he's your, you're his nemesis. He's your nemesis. You've been fighting each other for years. Why would you think he would risk everything?
3: Well, it's exactly because he stole this, all this money. So he stole the money from the oligarchs. He's stolen the money from the Russian people. There's just no money left for regular people. And so you just can't take everything away from everybody for so long, and expect people to just take it, and what for twenty two years he's been doing this, and and he was worried, and not unjustifiably, that there the people Russian people were going to come after him someday in a really nasty way, you know he has nightmares about Ceausescu hanging from the lamppost and and Gaddafi, you know getting killed in a sewer pipe, that's how he would think the that's what he was afraid of, and Vladimir Putin is a, is is you know a, a sort of absolute psychopath in, in terms of his own psychology. He's a guy who has no empathy for anybody else, but he's desperately afraid of, for his own survival. Totally self-centered, scared for his own survival. And so he thought that the Russian people were going to come after him one day, and he thought the best way of avoiding this was to give them a different enemy. And so he creates a foreign enemy. And this is not i mean, this, this is not rocket science, what I'm talking about. No, it's you. a
0: playbook. It's a playbook of lots of dictators when they're in it, when, 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 when they think that one trick has come to an end.
3: Exactly. And so he started a war. And by the way, it's not even the first time he started a war. In two thousand eight he started a war with Georgia and his approval ratings went through the roof. Two thousand fourteen he took illegally took Crimea and went into eastern Ukraine. Approval ratings went through the roof. And so he started this war and guess what? His approval ratings went through the roof. And also gave him all sorts of latitude to like declare effectively martial law and, and like get rid of all, you know, social media and independent newspapers and arrest anybody who who he doesn't like and and so on and so forth. And and so you know, he, he started this war because of the corruption. He started the, because of that money. And I think he didn't anticipate that we would be so robust in our sanctions. We we never have been in the past. We've always just gave him a pass every time he did something terrible, thinking that somehow that was, you know, we didn't want to provoke him or, you know, people didn't want to upset the flow of Russian money or whatever.
0: Sure. I mean, what do you think that for somebody, Bill, you've been, you know, twenty 20- 25 years, you understand what's going on in Russia. You know these people. And obviously around Putin are a whole load of people who've been profoundly enriched by the process, who've taken lots and lots of goodies. Where do you think this ends? What's the end game?
3: Well, that's the whole thing. There is no end game. The end game for Putin is just staying in power. How does he stay in power? He needs to constantly be at war. And so all these people that that think that, that somehow if you give Putin Eastern Ukraine or you give him some NATO commitment that he's going to stop. I don't believe that's true for a second. I think that he's just going to carry on and carry on and carry on because for him, you know, yes, there's there's been a military downside. He's lost 20,000 troops. Yes, there's been a huge economic downside. All the money is frozen. But there's been a huge upside, which is that he now no longer has to worry about getting overthrown, which is his biggest concern. And um, he's not going to give that up, I don't think. I think he's going to carry on doing this. And um, I think the best comparable is the Iran-Iraq War, which went on for ten years and, and a million soldiers died in, in, from both sides? That's the more likely scenario here, not not some. You know, everyone is saying this is this is you know this has to end soon. There's going to be a, you know they'll have a peace treaty. I, I don't think so. I, I think this goes on and on and on. And I, I know for sure that Putin can't back down. And I'm watching the Ukrainians, and I, I don't think that they will back down either. And, and nor should they. And so this is going to go on and, and it's going to fester and cause problems. And most horrifying for me is I, I think that people will eventually forget about it. I think in the West, we will eventually, you know, I mean, I was just in, at the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, all this week and everyone's talking about Ukraine right now. There, I don't think a single person mentioned Syria in the whole week. You yeah, know, but- and it's, uh, Syria was
0: the five, people forget, five million Syrians.
3: And and five hundred thousand dead Syrians, five hundred thousand yeah. dead killed by the regime, and and with yes, Russian help, with, with Russia's help, and and Assad is still in power. In fact, Syria just rejoined Interpol. I mean, you know, that's I think that's Putin's game plan is just to to wait out, wait us all out, and time is on his side, not on ours.
0: Yeah, and I was even noticing this week, You've people like Kissinger saying, and I mean, Kissinger's been around a long, long time. He believes in the great game, the moving chess pieces around. And he says, okay, it's time now to do a deal. I see the Italians are kind of moving in that way as well. Clearly, the Hungarians are moving in that way as well. And it seems that you're absolutely right. The, the Ukrainians are going to say, well, hold on a second. We're not going to, we've, we've been attacked and, and, and we've been killed by you guys. So it does have a kind of a meat grinder. I, I don't like to use that expression, sense of it. And yeah. it goes on and on and on. And in this case, Putin survives.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, as long as he physically survives because of, you know, without dying of disease or whatever, I think that he ends up, he's a cynical bastard, that guy. And by the way, he, the other weapon that he has is um, he's weaponizing consumer prices for us. Fuel, heating, gas, everything. And, and particularly this hunger thing. If, if, if he's successful starving everybody, around the world, and particularly in the third world, all those people are going to be coming en masse. We think we got immigration, you know, there'll be waves of, of refugees and economic migrants. And, you know, what's that going to do to us? It's going to create all sorts of weird politics in all countries around the world where people could change. We end up with new leaders. Maybe Donald Trump gets elected in 2024 in the United States. And, and, and all of a sudden he says, wait, a second.
0: in which case Putin's away. Yeah.
3: Well, Putin, all of a sudden, maybe Donald Trump says, you know, I don't like this NATO thing anymore. I don't, I don't like... Uh...
0: The European alliance or whatever it happens to be.
3: Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden everything fractures and Putin's back in the game and, and he's sitting there licking his chops.
0: So Bill, just before you go then, I mean, are you saying that, you you know, the cynical way in which he operates, the cynical way in which geopolitics operates the fact that people forget, the fact that people move on, the fact that people get on to the next crisis, the fact that there could be a global food crisis. Do you think that in the Kremlin now, if that's where he is, Vladimir Putin's thinking, yeah, the first three months didn't go according to plan, but I still have a few cards up my sleeve.
3: Oh my God. He's got unlimited cards up his sleeve. He gets a billion dollars every day to buy new cards from sale of oil and gas. He's, he can carry on and on and on. He'll, he'll wear us down because he doesn't care about his own people, we have every politician on our side has got to worry about the opposition, has got to worry about the press, has to worry about the courts, has to worry about every the people, everything. And he doesn't have any of that worrying. and he can just starve his people and wait us out. And so, which, you know, raises the obvious question, what, what do we do? Well, yeah. we, we, we give the Ukrainians every tool that we can possibly give them, because we don't want to fight the Russians ourselves. We give them everything we would use to fight the Russians, like the most high-tech Devastating, unbelievable military equipment we have, and let the Ukrainians loose on the Russians so that they can defeat Putin, which is entirely plausible and possible in the current scenario, and let them take care of him. Because if he loses, if the Russians lose this war, if they if they're beaten back from the borders of Ukraine, the, the Russian people will take care of Putin in a heartbeat. They don't like losers.
0: Bill Browder, we'll leave it there. Thank you very very much again. The book is called Red Notice: The True Story of Corruption, Murder, One man's Fight for Justice. If you read this. It's a story of a number of individuals, an extraordinary, nasty system. But there is hope at the end, which is the fact that in many cases, or in a lot of cases, you got the Majinsky Protocol done, and lots and lots of countries are signing up to it.
3: And, and in fact, Ireland is next on 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 deck. I'm working with uh, Brendan Howland and the Parliament to get a Maginski Act in Ireland, and it's coming along very nicely. I, Great I, stuff. I, well, we'll follow that. Cheers, Bill. Thank you very much.
1: United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool
3: facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com.
2: Do you know, Mac, I thought that was absolutely fascinating stuff, but there is an element. I'm a little bit sceptical. We're hearing loads of stuff coming out of Russia. And I'm never quite sure what to believe. For instance, you know, some of the stuff I've been reading recently is that Putin is ill. Or there's a group that are fermenting a coup there at the moment. Yeah, I don't know how much that is true. And I know, like, what Breida was saying there was fascinating. Particularly when he's talking about he, he's still getting a, a a billion a day into his pocket to finance this invasion yeah, and keep yeah. it going. So
0: I think you're right to be skeptical. I I've always thought like you know, spending time over there, spending time with Russians, talking to Russians, you know, and also reading Russian literature and Russian history and all that. There is a massive tension at the heart of Russia the soul of Russia. Yeah, Like if you read, for example, Solzhenitsyn or some of the great Russian writers, okay, even the modern writers, but if you go all the way back to Chekhov and Pushkin and all that, there is this idea of who are we? Are we the Russian people? Like Mother Russia, they talk about Mother Russia, they talk about the essential idea that they are the epicenter of Slavic culture. Yeah. And they're a Eurasian race, not a European race, a Eurasian race that are Slavic first, right? And that's, the, that's one side of Russia, okay? Other side of Russia is the modernist Russia that we're Europeans, right? That we are basically Eastern Europeans. Yeah. So if you look at Russian history, you look at Peter the Great, for example, was the great modernist. He's the guy who actually came back from Amsterdam, we talked about this, yeah. and forced all the Russian nobles to cut off their beards. That was his first thing. Because <laughs> he yeah. said hipsters wouldn't like it. He was an anti-hipster leader, right? <laughs> he basically said, cut off your beards, stop wearing these fucking Cossacks, right? Yeah. These sort, of, these sort of antiquated Russian wings. And he's saying, let's modernize. So we don't want beards. We want you to dress like French noblemen or Dutch workers. We want you to speak French in the court, not Russian. Oh, right. We okay. want you to change and we want to reorientate Russia to the West. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, Catherine the Great said exactly the same thing. We reorientate Russia to the West. She even imported German, the vulgar Germans, even German workers and farmers to try and Westernize Russia. Yeah. So that's so. This tension between Slavic Russia and Western Russia has always been going on. There was a movement in Russia when I was there in the early nineties called Bog Snyem, which means God is with us in Russia.
2: Right. Okay. And
0: then these powerful these huge, huge, big flags everywhere. And they were a Russian Orthodox movement of nationalists. And I sat and I spoke to them at length for over many, many weeks. What
2: was their thing? Their
0: thing was that at the end of communism, what we should do is not go and be bloody Western. Right. So, McDonald's isn't the be-all and end-all. They were saying, right? We have a deep Russian culture and it's based largely on the Russian Orthodox Church. The nexus between the Kremlin and the Church. Okay? Monarchist. Tsarist, all right. And I would say, and they'd say things like the Crusaders, like you Western Crusaders. And i say, what? And we forget that the Crusaders sacked Byzantium. Yeah. Byzantium was the home of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The Russians believe that they are the inheritors of Christianity. The Crusaders pissed on the altar of the Byzantines. And the Russians still talk about this. Right? Really? That right. Wow. That basically your Christianity, you Western Christianities, God, man, you just deep, isn't it? it? That's deep. really it's deep. It's really deep, you know? And then you talk about... So, so the soul of Russia is complicated, complex, absolutely legitimate. It's an absolutely legitimate perspective. It's not just all about Putin is a mafia don, like a Tony Soprano for Slavic
2: people. Yeah. It's
0: not like that, right? He may well also be that. This idea of, interesting, but the West, you know, the proximity of the West. Well, the Russian nationalists will always say, we've only been invaded twice. and it has been from the West. That's our
2: weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Napoleon
0: yeah. was your guy. Hitler was your guy. Yeah. It's interesting. So when you think about this, and they also believe, wrongly, I think, in my mind, that their wars have always been wars of defense against the occupier,
2: against the invader. Yeah. Clearly. The it's clearly what the, there was Putin's line as well.
0: And it's all the stuff when he talks about, you know, the Nazism and whatever. So, what I'm saying is there is this extraordinary idea deep in the Russian soul that they are different and they are as legitimate a race as the Chinese, for example. Right. Right. That they have a deep history, all that sort of stuff. Right. There's also this idea of the smoke and mirrors that you talk about. Yeah. And we spoke about it before. It's well worth mentioning it again, the Potemkin villages. Do you remember? I yeah, yeah, that? yeah, yeah. So this, you know, Potemkin was Catherine the Great's lover. Now, what is really nice about these two is you actually they, they, these really extraordinary, gentle and sweet love letters to each other. Right? It's not that she was this, because everyone thinks she was this monstrous creature and he was this monstrous and they were really affectionate. And he was actually from, he was born in Kherson, the place in Ukraine that yeah. the Russians have just destroyed, ironically, and when the Russians took over what is now Ukraine in the 1750s, right? They had to basically lie first to Catherine the Great and second to the outsiders. So this is the idea that Potemkin villages—he mm. actually created these villages. Yeah, yeah. And every time Catherine the Great came in our big bar, they were, and they were just shop fronts. They were just shop fronts, so they yeah. were like, "Hi, how are you? <laughs> You're fantastic, Catherine!" And then they. The right? Yeah. And that was basically, and this is the interesting thing. Lots of people believe that Putin has been lied to by his own military because they were afraid of him. Yeah, And they said, don't worry, we'll take this place in a week, right? You know, they always say the quality of the information gets worse as you get closer to the king. Right. Because nobody at close tells them the truth. It's the same as corporate leaders. I always find these chief executives yeah. who say, oh, I didn't know what was going on. Maybe they didn't. Because yeah. everyone lies to them, because everyone's looking for something. So basically, Potemkin lied to Catherine the Great and said, don't worry, Catherine, the Ukrainians love you, right? And the Tartars love you. Yeah. And the second side is, they also lied to the outside. So Churchill, I think, described Russia as a dilemma wrapped in an enigma or something like this, right? right. And that comes down to your point that you don't know what to believe. Yes. That everyone's spinning against everybody else. And the West are the great spinners, right? And the Russians are spinning back, and it's a war of information, and it's a war of misinformation. But ultimately, ultimately, it's a war that will be not defined by, but made longer by money. And that's what Browder is saying, is that Putin has enough money to continue for a long time. And if he has enough money to continue for a long time, there is a certain part of me that believes the West will be very, very cynical and we will deploy the Ukrainians because ultimately the West wants regime change in Russia. They want Putin out. Mm. So how do you get Putin out? You prolong the war because the more you prolong the war, the less he can win. Okay. How do you prolong the war? You arm the Ukrainians to the teeth and you get them to do your dirty work, which is exactly what Browder said. And that means that Ukraine becomes this meat grinder Mm. for years. Killing Fields. For years. And, and that's what maybe someone like Kissinger, who is not always spoken of in high regard in this podcast. No. Right? What Kissinger is saying, and lots of people are saying, it, it is a great game. And there are spheres of influence. And Russia's sphere of influence is whether you like it or not, close to eastern Ukraine and Crimea and Georgia and all those places. And if you upset that essential balance... He's going back to, for example, what Kissinger is a great believer in is the history of after the Napoleonic settlement, right? That basically Austria Hungary, Russia, Prussia, England, France managed to keep Europe without a war for 100 years, the Treaty of Vienna. Mm. And he's a great stu- student of that. And he's saying there are these spheres of influences. In fact, you know, I, I, I actually interviewed Kissinger. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the amazing thing about Kissinger, right? is lots and lots of people think that he is the Prince of Darkness. If you believed that, I'll tell you what happened. Kissinger has a retina infection in his eye,
2: right? right?
0: And he cannot be interviewed under bright lights. So you have to interview the lad in the dark. It's like talking to the devil. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sitting there. And all you can see is an agenda interview about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting there and Kissinger's talking in this really heavy Germanic accent, yeah. right? But he's like a tortoise shell, a silhouette of a tortoise shell. Yeah. he does this big, big head in him. Yeah. So if you think this man is the Prince of Darkness, I can tell you when you meet him in the half darkness, <laughs> he puts the shits up you completely. <laughs> but his point is interesting. He's saying a deal will have to be done there, which will give the Russians something to allow them to back down. That's what he's saying. And that's, what I think, what the Italians are saying. I think maybe Macron is saying this.
2: Who's uh, going to do this And though?
0: Zelensky is saying, no way, we've just exactly. been abused. And that's where the West may actually atrophy and may split. And that could all come in the next couple of weeks. While I have you there, Doki Book Festival, what's not to love? One village, four days, 75 events 100 speakers from all over the world arts science culture politics economics the whole lot check it all out at dorkybookfestival.org and you never know we might all go for a pint